Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Langwin, hoping, hoping you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. Most of us, I think, have some wonderful stories to tell about our dads, about our fathers on this Father Day, Father's Day, uh, when we can be inspired by our memories, the sacrifices and love that was shown by by our fathers. I'd like to begin our program as we do each week with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination. Peter said to the young men sitting around the campfire, Ask the master any question you want, and he will answer it, for he knows everything. Jesus raised his hand and said, Peter, be silent. Peter mumbled, well, you do. John said, hush, let the master speak. Jesus said, are there questions you wish to ask? A young man came closer and said, if the father is so loving and so caring, why has he permitted evil to fill the hearts of men? Then he continued, take my father, for example, He is not a kind merchant. He cheats those who come to buy from him, especially the poor. And Jesus just nodded. Another young man spoke up and said, Master, there are times when I look into the flames and think I would rather be evil than good. The other young men started to laugh. One said, You have drunk too much wine. No, he said, I want to be powerful. When you're evil, people respect you more because they're afraid of you. This is true, Jesus said, but would you sell your soul? They all looked at one another. What do you mean, they asked. Jesus said, life upon earth is not easy. There are many struggles, many pains. You are born to live and to die. Each moment, each second is recorded. Then when your time comes, the good is balanced with evil. If there is more good... It is to your advantage. If there is more evil, you must learn again. Learn again, they said. When you're dead, you're dead. Another said, I don't see anyone coming back to life after they have breathed their last breath. Jesus asked, Why are you so interested in evil? Because it makes the mind wonder, another responded. If God is so powerful, why does he permit evil? Jesus answered, because we all have free will. And if man has free will, then why isn't he smart enough to get rid of evil, a young man asked. Because he is curious, Jesus answered. When he touches, what he touches seems sweet. But when he becomes involved with it, it is like gall, bitter to the taste and to the tongue. Evil looks beautiful when it is first seen, but it creates decay and causes pain that will never end, never leave. It stains the soul. And then Jesus looked up at the stars twinkling in the night. Tears slowly trickled down his face, and he said, If people were more interested in the Father than in evil, how this world would change. People were more interested in the Father than in evil. 
how this world would change. Our guest this evening writes in the first chapter of her book titled Beyond Hashtag Activism, subtitled Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated World. The kingdom of God encapsulates the fullness of God's heart for justice. Justice is the promise that one day the world will be made right. The book of Revelation reminds us that the kingdom is a place where there are no tears, where Christ will be glorified, and the brokenness of the world will be fully healed. In this quote from the book of Revelation, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a picture of God's divine justice. Through Christ, the brokenness of the world has been redeemed. And one day, justice will completely prevail. The Bible was a book about justice, kingdom justice, biblical justice, and social justice. For God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but to reconcile the world to himself. John 3.16 is the heart of the gospel. Christ came to save the lost and broken so that the world might be reconciled to God and once again made right the way God intended it to be. The author of this book and those particular words is Dr. May Elise Cannon. She's the executive director of churches for the Middle East and also an ordained minister in the Evangelical Covenant Church. She formerly served as the senior director of advocacy and outreach for World Vision U.S. on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. She holds her doctorate in American history with a minor in Middle Eastern studies from the University of California, Davis. And she holds an MDV, Master of Divinity, from North Park Theological Seminary, a Master of Business from North Park University School of Business and Nonprofit Management, and a master's degree in bioethics from Trinity International University. Dr. May Elise Cannon, welcome back to Amplify. Thank you for having me. Um, she's been a guest once before when we talked about her book, uh, Just uh, Spirituality. It was a few years ago. Uh, and in that book, you may remember she used the examples looking at the lives of Mother Teresa, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and others uh, found a depth of spiritual practice at the root of courageous social action. What does the title of your book, and there are people who are young and old listening to this program, so what does the title of your book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, reveal about your approach to comprehensive justice in a complicated age? Yeah, well, I think the title speaks to one of the main ways people today are engaging in activism, which is on social media. You know, the whole world is smaller and closer together because of the stories that we hear. And so hashtags are one of the ways these conversations 
take place on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and other forms of social media. And I, I think that's a great place to start. I mean, Black Lives Matter is, you know, a hashtag that has launched a movement that the entire world is responding to. Um, hashtag Me Too. I mean, these are things that I'm sure people are familiar with. But my hope and prayer is that we start with the hashtags, but that our activism and our engagement in justice doesn't end there, uh, but pro- progresses beyond our engagement on social media. And if I'm to look at the contents, and I wish we had the time, even as this uh, extended interview tries to provide for, um, we won't cover all of the issues, maybe touch on them. Depends how the Spirit meet, um, leads us, but... Uh, Part one is about biblical justice and the gospel. Part two, poverty. Part three, race. They all have subtitles. Part four is gender. And part five is 21st century divides. What what made you want to talk about these particular topics, these issues in your book? Well, the idea for the book came in 2018. Um, I knew that 2019 was going to be the 10th anniversary of my first book, Social Justice Handbook, uh, Small Steps for a Better World. And so I had in my mind to maybe do an updated version. But then looking around at what's happening in the United States and what was happening at that time, you know, and this was all before the global pandemic and um, before so much of the uh, unrest in response to racial injustice that's happened over the past several weeks. And I just was heartbroken by the way the church in the United States is so divided. And so this book is seeking to address what are those divisions all about and what's the Bible have to say about them and how can we learn to disagree while also not compromising on pursuing issues of justice, that we don't want to um, compromise on pursuing justice But we also, as the body of Christ, should seek unity. And so what's that look like when we disagree? And so that's what the book sought to address and the questions I hoped to respond to. Good. And as I look at the—having read read the book very thoroughly and uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, such a great beginning, such uh, powerful thoughts uh, that would lead us to want to read it. You write, for example, uh, today— Christians in the United States have never been more divided on issues of social justice. That's saying a whole lot just right there, that we've never been divided. Then you you write, the intersection of these diverse and complicated issues reminds the church that the world is not yet fully redeemed. Every time we recount the Lord's Prayer saying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we are acknowledging the reality that the shalom of God is not yet fully present here on this earth. We see only glimpses of hope and triumph and goodness. As believers and followers of Jesus, we are called to never give up hope, to persist in our belief that injustice and oppression are not the end of the story. Some wonderful thoughts there we really need to reflect on. In many ways, it's the cry of my heart. I mean, you were starting us off just a few minutes ago, you know, telling the story of Jesus and um, his encounter, you know, with the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And I think as we look around the world and as we see evil, um, which, you know, my own life has intersected with just some very, very intense traumas. And 
I think, I, I don't think, I know the good news that Jesus brings is that those traumas are but temporary, you know, so the, the verses in Revelation that, talking, that talk about every tear being wiped from our eye, that that's a promise to each one of us um, mm. of the way that God intended for the world to be, a place that's beautiful and reflects his glory and uh, that shines goodness um, and is full of the love of God for his creation, uh, particularly for his creation in humanity. Right, and there is hope even in the midst of the difficulties we're facing now as uh, this virus is uh, seems to be expanding once again in many states. And, of yeah. course, most importantly, the issue of racism. And one of the questions you raise in your book is, the world is not as God intends it to be. God's heart is to make things right and for the world to be just. But complex problems warrant more sustained attention than quick posts on social media. And this question then, how can we actually make a difference? And this book suggests many ways that we can, don't you? That's the hope, yes. And the fact that there's so many ways, and you you show how the church is divided on, on various issues. Biblical justice, the part one, biblical justice, and the gospel. Um, and you write that biblical justice is the manifestation of the full gospel of Christ. It is woven intricately throughout the entirety of the gospel. Say a little bit more about uh, biblical justice. Yes. Well, and I think this speaks to one of the great divisions of the church. You know, in the United States in the early 20th century, there was a division between, you know, Christians that professed the social gospel, which was the idea that um, faithfulness to Christ meant responding to the needs of your neighbor and socially engaging. And, and so you had this division in the early 20th century where a part of the church really emphasized social goodness and the common good and social justice. And then this other side of the church focused on personal righteousness and being in right relationship with God. And as you know, many theologians and writers have written before me, the holistic gospel is neither one nor the other, but both combined. And I I think that there's a very clear argument to be made from the Hebrew scriptures through the New Testament that asserts that righteousness and justice are uh, essential elements of our faith. So you look at these two terms in the Old Testament and hundreds of times you see righteousness and justice side by side. You know, the Psalms say righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And my understanding of what that means is it's about right relationship with God, but because we desire piety and purity and holiness and sacredness, we then enter into a process of transformation, which is personal transformation, but also Uh, systemic transformation, which then manifests itself by the way we engage in society. And so that's what justice is. Justice is, you know, right action in the world, Um, you know, which ultimately the greatest example of biblical justice is Christ's death on the cross in terms of the atonement for sin, that sin had to be rectified and made right according to the law. And that's what Christ's death on the cross did for us. 
and you know what's amazing when you look at the New Testament is that um, there's one word in the Greek, um, you know, in the language the New Testament was written in that encapsulates these two ideas of righteousness and justice together. The Greek word is dikaios or dikaiosune, and in almost every translation in English. The word is translated as righteousness instead of righteousness and justice. So, but when you look at the original language, these verses that many of us are so familiar with, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, that really means blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right relationship with God, and justice right relationship with your neighbor and justice being manifested in society. And um, it, you write that you believe that oppressed communities are often the most profound places to hope. And that, that if indeed that's true, that, that should give us hope that the, the oppressed communities are often the most profound places for hope. And then you write about prophetic advocacy that have five primary types, uh, spiritual, social, legal, political, and economic. And each of them, uh, you believe, has its own unique challenges and obstacles. Now, we're going to be taking a break in just 15 seconds, so I don't want to ask you a question right now. (laughs) But when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about what is spiritual advocacy. And in your book, what are the four best practices that you have identified. We'll be right back. Welcome back to uh, Amplify, where our guest this evening is Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. We're talking about her latest book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in the Complicated Age. We're talking about part one, which is titled Biblical Justice and the Gospel. Um, Two parts to it, God's Justice and Prophetic Advocacy and Politics in the Gospel. And I've chosen to read to deal with this first, to discuss, I should say, really, uh, this first chapter before we move to the issue of racism and, and whatever time we have to go other places uh, in in the book. But uh, I, I set up where we wanted to begin uh, this next part of the program in asking uh, Dr. Cannon about uh, spiritual av- adg- advocacy and the and follow that with the the four best practices and you have that you have identified. Let's talk about the first. What is meant by spiritual advocacy uh, among the types you mentioned, including also social, legal, political, and economic? Sure. Well, I think the greatest example we have of spiritual advocacy is the Holy Spirit, and so the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. Um, which I believe means that um, when, when we intercede and when we pray on behalf of other people, you know, that the Holy Spirit joins us in those prayers. And so one of the mechanisms by which we can advocate for people is by praying for them, um, which is a part, of course, of our spiritual practices and our spiritual intimacy with God. And so to be a spiritual advocate is someone who stands in solidarity before the throne of God and intercedes and calls for intervention, calls for protection, um, or prays the Lord's Prayer the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Um, and uh, that's, that, that's what it means to be a spiritual advocate. 
and you indicate that uh, spiritual advocacy includes seeking to meet or seeking, yeah, seeking to meet with God and come into alignment with his will on behalf of others of the world. We know God cares for the poor and the oppressed. And after that, you, you write about the four best practices that uh, you have identified. Just to speak um, uh, a little sure. bit about each of them. We could, we could probably spend the rest of the time talking <laughs> just about these best practices. Yes. And I, I don't think that these are mutually exclusive by any means. And, and I don't know that this list is comprehensive, but I find often in the advocacy space that these um, four principles are missing. So the first one I talk about is that in our advocacy efforts, we should have a clearly defined goal. Um, and I think that's strategic, you know, but for example, we currently have, you know, protests happening all over the country and even all over the world calling for um, justice and calling for racial justice and dismantling racism. And for those individual um, protests and gatherings and demonstrations to be the most effective is for there to be a clearly articulated goal of what um, these communities are trying to accomplish. And so in some communities, there's very, very clear goals. You know, in Minneapolis, for example, um, you know, one of the goals was police reform because of, you know, the way the police system um, has discriminated uh, so severely against people of color, but particularly African-Americans. And so one of the goals of the protests the broad goal was, of course, racial justice, but there was a very specific goal of police reform, um, you know, which set about uh, a mechanism and a way for racial justice to be accomplished. So that's the first one. It should, do you want me to go through all four? Please. Yeah, you can do so briefly, just so we get a good sense before we move into the other issues. Okay. Um, and then the second um best practice that I talk about is that advocates should be pragmatic in our efforts. And what I mean by that is often the activist communities are people who care deeply about justice issues, you know, be it police reform or immigration or, um, you know, uh, standing up for the right of embryos, you know, the inherent right of an embryo uh, to have life. And so when we care so passionately about these issues, often we kind of get in this very I, I, um, prophetic space, if you will. And, and it's incredibly important for the sake of the goal to be pragmatic. And so in the book, I give some examples of what that looks like, you know, citing Wilberforce. Wilberforce did not win the moral argument to end slavery. There was a legal case, you know, where he won on a legal mm -hmm. technicality, at least initially, and then the moral argument won later. Um, and so I think that's really important for us to be pragmatic in our efforts. Um, the third best practice I write about, and this might seem so simple, but we have to get our facts right. You know, let's not be hyperbolic. Let's not exaggerate. Um, injustices speak on behalf of themselves. And when you have facts and statistics, you know, to not exaggerate is something that uh, builds credibility you know, as we're seeking to have real issues be addressed. And then my final best practice um, is that success in our advocacy efforts really will require fortitude and persistence and longevity and the sustainability of the work that we do means we have to stay in it even when it's really, really hard. 
what uh, stood out to me was uh, when you write about uh, sometimes you say that prophets are the worst advocates, but we definitely <laughs> need prophets. And you write that their ability to courageously go ahead of others and speak the truth while inspired by the Holy Spirit creates space for effective pragmatists to follow in their stead, painstakingly working on mundane details in the advocacy space that make a real difference and can often have profound effects. How do, re- how do you, or can you, or should you in any way, speak about these four best practices in light of what's happening in so many communities in the United States right now? Sure. Well, I think the the prophetic voice of, you know, so many in the black community across the U.S. and in communities of color, there have been prophets who have been calling for justice in terms of racial discrimination and dismantling white supremacy, not only for years and for decades, but for centuries. And in that regard, you know, we're at this point in the history of the United States where there's no longer an excuse. And I would argue that there hasn't been an excuse, you know, since the time of slavery and, and even before that, you know, with the settling of uh, Europeans here on the continent. But the realities of racial discrimination have come to the surface and been made so visible that now is the time for us to be strategic, to, you know, get our hands dirty in terms of just what I was talking about um, you know, in Minneapolis and in cities across the country where there are systemic issues that need to be addressed. And, you know, just shouting um, uh, mandates and things like that isn't going to solve it, but looking deeply at what are the real issues. You know, one issue is that many police forces do not represent the demographic of the communities that they're, you know, um, supposed to protect. And so that's a real issue in police forces around the country. And there's different issues depending on where the geography is, right? And so just because something's going to work to address Uh, racism in Boston, that's not going to work in rural Georgia. And so that's part of what I mean about um, being willing to get into the specifics and get our hands dirty. Uh, And there's so many incredible organizations that are doing great work um, in that regard. Let's um, discuss now part three, which is uh, race, which is broken down into four parts, white supremacy in American Christianity, Second, racial violence, police brutality, and the age of incarceration. Third, global immigration and battles at the border. And finally, divisions of race and ethnicity around the world. You write that um, racism in the 21st century America is a reality. Um, What then is racism and what are some of the ways in which it is expressed? Sure. Well, racism essentially is prejudice uh, in the hands of people who have power. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's not any question that depending on the color of your skin and depending on different geographic locations throughout the United States, people today are still, even in the 21st century, treated differently. And so I tell the story of 2013 
you know, the young man who was 17 years old, Trayvon Martin, you know, a young African-American man in Florida who was on his way to a 7-Eleven and picked up some Skittles and a drink. And, you know, he was wearing a hoodie and he was in a neighborhood, I believe that was a white neighborhood. And, you know, ultimately he was killed, um, you know, by a gentleman with the last name of Zimmerman. Uh, and, and, What's so critical for us to understand is that he was killed because he was black, right? A a white young man who had been in those circumstances, the the probability of his life being at risk if he had been white would be totally different. Um, And, and, you know, Trayvon Martin was – his death was seven years ago and the unrest and the racial protests that happened after his death and after Michael Brown in 2014, um, they were not as pervasive, you know, whites in large part ignored them or didn't engage or didn't come alongside of communities of color to say enough is enough on this racial profiling. And, you know, the fact that young men who are men of color are often at risk of death at the hands of the police, you know, that now has become much more of an issue because of the death of George Floyd just a few weeks ago. But this has been going on for years and for decades and for centuries. And I mean, those are just some examples of the way that racism manifests itself in society today. How should we understand um, a white privilege uh, that you indicate must be recognized and understood? Sure. Well, I I think looking at history is really critically important. And I would point people to a book I had the privilege of co-authoring that's called Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith, that looks at the history of how the systems that we have today were built. And they were built on the presupposition that whiteness was esteemed and whiteness, being white, is better than being any other color, any other ethnicity, or from any other culture. So much so that in the early 1900s, all the way through the 30s and the 40s, and throughout the civil rights movement, there were movements around the United States that were actually eugenics movements or um, movements that celebrated whiteness. So they had these bitter family contests where you'd go to the county fair you know, and, and we're used to county fairs. I still have one in the county where I grew up in rural southern Maryland. And at the county fairs, there would be an award given for the families that were the most white. Yeah. And so these, this idea that whiteness is better and whiteness is esteemed has actually been built into the very systems and structures of our society today. So we could talk about the prison system. The prison system today was directly inherited from the slave system. Many slave plantations actually became prisons. You know, Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. It's named Angola because that's where the Africans came from when they were the slaves. The the African slaves were brought from the country of Angola. So Louisiana State Penitentiary today, it was a slave breeding plantation prior to the Civil War. And so understanding those systems that are built on not only white privilege, but white supremacy is part of what needs to happen for us to be able to dismantle you know, racism within our society. You mentioned white supremacy. How is it different from the concept of white privilege? Sure. Well, white privilege um, is just what it sounds like, that there's certain benefits that we have, you know, 
um, where we might be very aware of racial history and racial dynamics, but, you know, I'm a white woman and I have privileges that are inherent uh, in that. You know, I don't have to worry when I go into a store that someone's going to follow me around and worry about me stealing something. You know, that's just a privilege. Whereas white supremacy is the assumption that whiteness is the highest value or the highest good. And um, you write... White supremacy doesn't only manifest itself against people of color, but against Jews and other minority groups as well. And you note that one of the worst incidents of anti-Semitism compelled by white supremacy was the Tree of Life shooting here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on October 27, 2018. And you note that it was among the deadliest attacks toward the Jewish community in the United States. So um, you're speaking to people right here now that uh, felt a man's hatred uh, through what he did. And But it's not the only, only place or only time. You, you, deal, you do a lot of work with Churches for Middle East Peace, and, and uh, you have a position yourself— on that, I, I would read it, but it's a. Uh, uh, it might be too long just to read for now. Sure. But uh, tell us about your position there. Yeah, so I'm the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace, and we exist to promote peace building in the Middle East and to educate American Christians and churches about what's happening uh, throughout the Arab Peninsula, throughout the Levant region, um, in Egypt and North Africa. And, you know, one of our primary commitments there is that we stand against any type of bigotry. And, you know, it's incredibly important that we understand um, both anti-Muslim behavior and anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic behavior. Um, and both are present in advocacy work as it relates to the Middle East. And so when you mentioned the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, it just was a brutal act where, you know, the gentleman who perpetuated the killing actually sh shouted terrible racist epithets, um, you know, prior uh, to the actions. And I had the privilege of hearing the rabbi from that synagogue at a gathering in Washington, D.C. just last year, and it was so profound yes. to hear him talk about a message of forgiveness and a message of love and how the community has come together since that great loss, um, which I thought was incredibly inspiring. Yes, he, he is very inspiring, Rabbi. Uh, and um, we, you write perhaps something that drives people to do what they do, that the Brookings Institute reports that by the year 2045, which is only 25 years from now, the United States will be, quote-unquote, minority white. And then you have this quote from Dr. Claude. The browning of America is not in the distant future, but is already happening today politically. Many white people fear this shifting demographic reality. How true do you think that is? I think it's very true, and I think people fear what they do not know. So one of the greatest positive outcomes of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that have been happening just the last several weeks in response to um, the death of George Floyd you know, and to other deaths within the black community has been the broad 
sweeping efforts towards awareness about black history, um, about, um, you know, I don't know if you, you know, ever watch Amazon Prime, but, you know, all of these things that are very mainstream in our media are, are calling attention to beautiful stories of African-American culture and history. And um, I think that's really wonderful because it's a great starting point. We fear what we do not know, but when we're in proximity to communities that might look differently than we do, uh, it helps to dismantle that fear. And the concept of white fragility, how should we understand that? Yes, um, there's a, a book that's called White Fragility uh, by Robin D'Angelo um, that talks about how whites often, when we talk about racism, become very, very defensive. And, and actually, the aptitude of whites to talk about racism is very, very low. And, you know, part of the privilege of being white is that we don't have to talk about it. We can ignore it. We can, um, you know, not face that it's a reality in our country, whereas communities of color, because of the color of their skin, face those realities every day. Um, I just read an article recently that was talking about white fragility, and they were actually talking about some of the efforts towards racial justice that uh, bring white people um, into more immediate exposure to communities of color actually have the opposite effect of dismantling racism, because whites um, feel like they've done, you know, they've done what they need to do, you know, that they've uh, read the history, that type of thing, and then they just remove themselves from the conversation, uh, which is quite destructive and ultimately doesn't address the systemic issues um, that really need to be addressed. When it comes to um, um, white supremacy, racial injustice, um, there are uh, five steps from a group that wrote uh, an article, uh, Charlottesville, some gospel thinking on white supremacy claims that, quote, the acts of white supremacy that took place in Charlottesville, Virginia, should encourage the church to act aggressively to deter racist ideals within her rank. So um, we just have 45 seconds, so I'm not going to ask you to go through those points. But there are steps mm-hmm. that we can take. And uh, before we finish this particular part of the book, we'll talk more about that uh, whenever we come back. And um, this had to be a very difficult chapter for you to write. Uh, and it's even more painful, I think, now in light much of what it is we are facing at this particular time. So our guest is Dr. Re- Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. We're talking about her book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. <laughs> 